0: Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the Emergency Medicine Residents and Faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: EM Cardiology by Dr. Littman.
2: Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of Emergency Medicine Cardiology, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolina's Medical Center Emergency Medicine Group. Today we have me, Sean Murray,
1: Claire Milam, Chelsea Wilson,
2: Laszlo Littman. This week's show is brought to you by
1: Peak T-Waves, a nice find that makes even the medical student look like they know how to read an EKG. Peak T-Waves.
2: All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This episode this week is going to be Lit. Did I do that correctly? I'm not young enough to use words like that, but I say that because we're welcoming the legendary Dr. Laszlo Littman back to the show today. He may be Hungarian, but no one goes hungry here today because we're all about to feast on some knowledge bombs about EKG changes and hyperkalemia.
3: That's right, Sean. This is a very important topic because it is one seen very frequently in the hospital setting and of course, wherever there are sick patients. According to different studies, five to 10% of all hospitalized patients will have hyperkalemia. You can bump that up to 20% for ICU patients or the sick patients that you all see in your major treatment area in the ED. And of course, hyperkalemia can be lethal due to its cardiotoxic effect, yet it often goes unrecognized for longer than it should when there are correct risk findings on an EKG we can look for.
1: That's right. You always have to be on the lookout for those peak T waves. You won't catch me sleeping on that hyperpotassium.
3: Well, that's a good start, too. But peak T waves are the least likely EKG findings associated with hyperkalemia that herald a life-threatening complication.
2: Well, great. Sounds like we've got a lot to learn then. So what kind of EKG findings can I expect with, let's say, a potassium
3: level of 8? Well, Sean, it's not quite that easy. It isn't just the absolute potassium level that is important. The rate of rise is also very important, as well as the patient's other medical problems. For example, if a patient has a history of chronic kidney disease, or ESRD, that also factors in. Other presenting conditions, such as hypocalcemia or decompensated acute metabolic acidosis, can also change the context significantly, and of course for the worse.
0: That's right. We see ESRD patients with potassium levels of 5.5 to 6.5 all the time in the emergency department, and they seem to do just fine.
3: That's right. In a patient with chronic renal failure, a potassium level of 8.2 with an EKG showing normal sinus rhythm, narrow QRS complexes, and maybe some peaking of the T waves is actually more reassuring than a de novo potassium level of 6.3 in a patient with no renal history here, with sepsis, with associated widening of the QRS complex, or even ST segment elevation. The type of EKG changes themselves is a more powerful indicator of the severity and the prognosis than the actual potassium level itself.
1: Well, in order to get really into the meat of this, I feel like we should do a brief review of the relevant physiology. Do you mind if the three of us take a shot at the cardiac action potential, Dr. Lippmann?
3: Well, that's a great place to start, but let's try to keep it simple.
2: Alright, if I remember correctly, and this was a long time ago learning all this, the action potential has five phases. To make things confusing, we always start at phase four, which is the polarized state. Potassium plays a big role here, because its efflux helps set the resting
3: membrane potential. That's right, and in hyperkalemic patients, there is more extracellular potassium. This disruption of the concentration gradient leads to a slower efflux of potassium out of the cells, ultimately resulting in a less negative membrane potential. We'll see how that affects the cycle in a minute.
1: Next comes phase 0, which is the depolarization. This is where the fast sodium channels open, resulting in a rapid influx of the sodium ions into the cardiac myocytes, which result in an action potential.
3: Indeed. And when the resting membrane potential is less negative, as in hyperkalemia, the chemical gradient of sodium is also affected, resulting in a slower, lower amplitude of flux of sodium into the cells. Do you have any idea how we see that on the EKG?
1: Um, maybe that widened QRS that we see?
3: Absolutely correct. Another consequence of less sodium influx is that less intracellular calcium is released. And as we know, intracellular calcium release is important for the tropomycin complex that serves in cardiac contraction. Less sodium influx, less calcium release, this results in lesser contractility, which can manifest as the hypotension or even PEA that can be seen with severe hyperkalemia. So to sum it up, Low sodium influx is reflected by widened curious complexes, which in turn signifies impaired left ventricular contractility.
2: Well, we've pretty much covered the effect of hyperkalemia on cardiac depolarization. Let's now talk about repolarization. In phase three of the action potential, the delayed rectifier potassium channels stay open until the resting membrane potential is achieved again.
3: That's right. In hyperkalemia, this results in a faster and more homogeneous efflux of potassium ions out of the cell. Do you have any idea how this shows up on the EKG?
0: OK, so if this is repolarization, that probably has to do with the T wave. Is this where peak T waves comes in?
3: Yeah, got it. This is also where the QT shortening will come from as well.
1: All right. Well, now that I know the answer to all those questions I missed on step one, there was a lot of them, <laughs> I think that we're ready to move on to talk about the actual EKG changes that we're going to see in the ED and hyperkalemia.
3: Yes, that's the meat of it. So. I find it helpful to group the EKG changes into categories based on how they are affecting the cardiac action potential, as well as by how ominous or dangerous those changes can be. The first few changes we talk about are likely very benign, whereas the last few we talk about can indicate potentially life-threatening complications. The first category, the more benign one, we will go through is repolarization abnormalities.
1: Okay. And you said repolarization is the T-waves. So let's talk about those peak t waves first then. This is probably the most well-known change that we see on EKG and the easiest to find because your eyes are kind of drawn to them.
0: Okay, so let's go through a couple of cases. For those listening at home, please refer to the show notes to see the EKGs we're referring to.
3: Okay, let's look at case one. Here (laughs) we have a 26-year-old with a history of ESRD, here in the ED with a chief complaint of weakness and fatigue. Her potassium level is found to be 76 Are you rushing to admit her for emergent dialysis?
2: Well, I see here that she has some peak T-waves, but her QRS complex looks narrow, her ST segments are fine. She's not bradycardic. I mean,
3: based on what you're telling me, I don't think that there's an emergency here on this EKG. Very good. As you see, her T-waves are like the Eiffel Tower, tall with a narrow base. The width of the base of the T-wave is roughly the same as the width of the QRS. But now let's show a more extreme example. In case 2, we have a 25-year-old with ESRD, who is here with fatigue and lethargy. She has stable vital signs and this EKG. Her potassium level is found to be very elevated, almost critical, at
1: 8.8. Wow, that is a high potassium level. I pretty much start to stress out anytime it gets above 6 or 7. But on the EKG, I see some peak T waves, but the QRS is actually narrow, and the axis looks normal, as do the ST segments.
3: Exactly. And for that reason, there is probably little urgency to address the potassium at this point.
1: So how high does the potassium have to be before we see those really tall T waves?
3: Actually, very mild hyperkalemia can produce T waves that are indeed peaked, but sometimes not at all tall. In this EKG here, the potassium is 5.2, very mild hyperkalemia. You can see that the T waves are peaked, but they are very short. They appear pinched at the base. In the second EKG, the potassium level is higher at 7. And again, we see the T waves, which are short and pinched.
0: So the other repolarization abnormality we talked about was QT shortening. In the next couple of EKGs in the notes, you can see how this plays out. In the first, the potassium is 4.9 and the QTC is 420. When the potassium is 6.3, the QTC shortens to 386.
2: So if we see these EKG findings... They may not indicate an emergency, but I still have to do something about
3: them, right? Well, certainly. Continue hydrating when indicated, continue to follow the potassium levels, get serial EKGs, but ultimately keep searching for or treating the underlying cause, whether that may be sepsis, renal failure, decay, or something else. If you don't fix the underlying cause, you may begin to see one of the changes in the next category we are talking to talk about, depolarization and conduction abnormality, much, much more worrisome.
1: So when we see the depolarization abnormalities, you mean things like wider QRS, right?
3: Yes, indeed. But there are several other abnormalities, and some are more worrisome than the others.
0: I seem to remember the P waves can also be affected. Um, I've seen patients with hyperkalemia that looks like they don't have P waves at all.
3: That's right. Hyperkalemia can lead to the flattening of the P waves. It can also prolong the PR interval, leading to first-degree AV block. These findings are usually slightly more clinically significant than the peak T waves we talked about earlier. Once we start seeing changes in the QRS complex, however, we know that the patient's potassium level is likely very dangerous, regardless of what the actual laboratory value is.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I've seen a few patients with critically high potassium that had EKGs that looked so dissimilar from their baseline in terms of morphology. A few of them even had a new bundle branch block.
3: Of course, as we talked about it before, Hyperkalemia affects phase 0 in such a way that prolongs the QRS complex. This can show up on your EKG as a left bundle branch block, right bundle branch block, bifacicular block, nonspecific internal conduction de- delay, and this can even result in a change in the QRS axis. Sean, why don't you take a look at this EKG and tell me what you see? This is a 53-year-old man with a history of cabbage, chronic kidney disease, and acute kidney injuries. potassium is very high. His <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's potassium is 9.
2: Well, it looks like sinus bradycardia with some left axis deviation. Some strange QRS complex morphologies. I, I see both right bundle branch block morphology. Is, is that a left anterior fascicular block?
3: Yes, yes, very good. And what is important, of course, that these are not chronic changes. These are acute changes that the patient just developed. The next EKG is the same patient after he received IV calcium, insulin and glucose and underwent dialysis. His potassium is now
2: 4.9. Wow, this doesn't even look like the same patient. This is a normal sinus rhythm with normal axis. The bifascicular block is gone now, too. He's got a
3: narrow QRS. That's wild. <laughs> so it can be, calcium can be very, very effective. Now take a look at this next EKG. This is a 75-year-old gentleman with cancer who now has fever and shock.
1: I'm sorry, Dr. Littman, but I've gone through all of my steps, and this kind of looks like a normal EKG to me. I see normal situs rhythm, and really nothing remarkable about it.
3: You have passed the test. Now the next EKG is the same patient two days later, after he has developed an acute kidney injury. His potassium rose all the way to 6.7.
1: Holy moly, now he has a wide QRS complex. I've been listening to you, Dr. Littman. That should have caught my attention. Even though his potassium isn't as high as some of the other patients we've talked about today, I should probably be more worried about him than most of the others, because he has such acute rise in his potassium that's resulted in new EKG changes.
3: Exactly right. Combine this with the QT prolongation effects also seen in severe hyperkalemia, I've got a recipe for a sine wave, which usually signifies severe and life-threatening hyperkalemia. In this example, EKG, you can see the progression of the EKG findings from his hyperkalemia, ultimately resulting in a cardiac arrest. First, the patient loses his P waves. Then, as you can see, his QRS begins to widen. Then his QT interval prolongs. Ultimately, it develops a sine wave appearance that degenerates into ventricular fibrillation.
2: Are there any other signs of life-threatening hyperkalemia that we should be looking for on an EKG, Dr. Lipman?
0: And how about double counting? I've heard you mention that before, and I'm not quite sure I know what you mean.
3: Uh, Sometimes the EKG machine will read a rate of 160, but when you count the curious complexes, or better, you put your hand on the patient's radial pulse, you only measure a rate of 80. This can happen because the machine interprets the tall, narrow, peak T waves as an additional curious complex. Or in the more severe cases of sine wave appearance, both the positive and negative deflections are counted as curious complexes. This results in a measurement of two beats for every one contraction. This is quite specific for hyperkalemia, and when combined with any crest widening or shift in the curse axis, it can indicate severe, life-threatening hyperkalemia at play.
0: Wow. One more reason not to trust machine interpretation and make sure to read your own EKGs. So another scenario I've encountered is a patient with really high potassium who seems to be having a STEMI on paper, but is free of any chest pain or other anginal equivalent. What's going on there?
3: Very astute observation. This is also a result of the potassium, which can cause an anterolateral STEMI pattern or even Brugada pattern. If the patient in front of you and the EKG do not match, consider checking the potassium level quickly before rushing to the cath lab. The patient may need IV calcium instead of a stent. Especially in the ICU setting, if a critically ill patient develops an anterolateral STEMI pattern or Brugada pattern in V1 and V2, critical hyperkalemia is actually much more likely than ACS or STEMI.
1: And one other thing to comment on, I'm sure most of you know this, but severe hyperkalemia is a common cause of wide-complex tachycardic arrest. Pulseless VTAC normally responds to high-energy shocks. But what happens if the VTAC turns out to be shock-resistant? Think of it as a wide-complex PEA rather than a VTAC, and potentially that severe hyperkalemia as a cause of it that should be treated.
0: All right, Dr. Littman, would you mind summing up what we've learned today?
3: Certainly. So in critically ill patients, always consider severe hyperkalemia if you see acute widening of the QRS complexes, even with new axis shifts, or if the EKG shows an unexpected anteroseptal STEMI pattern, when the EKG interpretation software double counts the heart rate, or if a regular wide complex tachycardia does not convert with high energy shocks, and that each of these situations push IV calcium.
2: Well, I think we've learned a whole bunch today, and hopefully you all have too. Thanks for everyone to tuning in to listen today. We hope you enjoyed and feel a little more confident reading EKGs on your next shift, armed with a little small portion of Dr. Littman's armamentarium. A special thanks, of course, to Dr. Lippman for sharing his time and knowledge with us. Until next time. Toodaloo. Thanks for listening to
0: EM Guidewire. Go. Be awesome today. CMC out.
2: to